Chapter 11. How when the sailors were prevented from sailing by bad weather, he predicted that it would be fine on a certain day, and how he obtained food by prayer. Meanwhile, the man of God began to wax strong in the spirit of prophecy, to foretell future events, and to describe to those he was with what things were going on elsewhere. Once upon a time, he left the monastery for some necessary reason, and went by sea to the land of the Picts, which is called Nijuari. Two of the brethren accompanied him, and one of these, who afterwards discharged the priest's office, made known to several the miracle which the man of God there performed. They arrived there the day after Christmas, hoping, because the weather and sea were both tranquil, that they should soon return, and for this reason they took no food with them. They were, however, deceived in their expectations, for no sooner were they come to land than a tempest arose and prevented them from returning. After stopping there several days, suffering from cold and hunger, the day of the holy theophany was at hand, and the man of God, who had spent the night in prayer and watching, not in idleness or sloth, addressed them with cheerful and soothing language, as he was accustomed. Why do you remain here idle? Let us do the best we can to save ourselves. The ground is covered with snow, and the heaven with clouds. The currents of both winds and waves are right against us. We are famished with hunger, and there is no one to relieve us. Let us entreat the Lord with our prayers, that, as he opened to his people a path through the Red Sea, and miraculously fed them in the wilderness, he may take pity on us also in our present distress. If our faith does not waver, I do not think he will suffer us to remain all this day fasting, a day which he formerly made so bright with his heavenly majesty. I pray you, therefore, to come with me and see what provision he has made for us, that we may ourselves rejoice in his joy. Saying these words, he led them to the shore where he himself had been accustomed to pray at night. On their arrival they found there three pieces of dolphin's flesh, looking as if someone had cut them and prepared them to be cooked. They fell on their knees and gave thanks to God. You see, my beloved brethren, said Cuthbert, how great is the grace of God to him who hopes and trusts in the Lord. Behold, he has prepared food for his servants, and by the number three points out to us how long we must remain here. Take, therefore, the gifts which Christ has sent us. Let us go and refresh ourselves and abide here without fear, for after three days there will most assuredly be a calm, both of the heavens and of the sea. All this was so as he had said. Three days the storm lasted most violently. On the fourth day the promised calm followed, and they returned with a fair wind home. Chapter 12 How he foretold that on a journey an eagle would bring him food, and how this took place accordingly. It happened also that on a certain day he was going forth from the monastery to preach, with one attendant only, and when they became tired with walking, though a great part of their journey still lay before them where they could reach the village to which they were going, Cuthbert said to his follower, Where shall we stop to take refreshment, or do you know any one on the road to whom we may turn in? I was myself thinking on the same subject, said the boy, for we have brought no provisions with us, and I know no one on the road who will entertain us, and we have a long journey still before us, which we cannot well accomplish without eating. The man of God replied, My son, learn to have faith and trust in God, 
who will never suffer to perish with hunger those who trust in him. Then looking up and seeing an eagle flying in the air, he said, Do you perceive that eagle yonder? It is possible for God to feed us even by means of that eagle. As they were thus discoursing, they came near a river, and behold, the eagle was standing on its bank. Look, said the man of God, there is our handmaid, the eagle that I spoke to you about. Run, and see what provision God hath sent us, and come again and tell me. The boy ran, and found a good-sized fish, which the eagle had just caught. But the man of God reproved him. What have you done, my son? Why have you not given part to God's handmaid? Cut the fish in two pieces, and give her one, as her service well deserves. He did as he was bidden, and carried the other part with him on his journey. When the time for eating was come, they turned aside to a certain village, and having given the fish to be cooked, made an excellent repast, and gave also to their entertainers, whilst Cuthbert preached to them the word of God, and blessed him for his mercies. For happy is the man whose hope is in the name of the Lord, and who has not looked upon vanity and foolish deceit. After this, they resumed their journey to preach to those among whom they were going. Chapter 13 How he foresaw a vision of fire coming from the devil whilst he was preaching, and how he put out the same. About the same time, as he was preaching the word of life to a number of persons assembled in a certain village, he suddenly saw in the Spirit our old enemy coming to retard the work of salvation, and forthwith began by admonitions to prevent the snares and devices which he saw were coming. Dearest brethren, said he, as often as you hear the mysteries of the heavenly kingdom preached to you, you should listen with attentive heart and with watchful feelings, lest the devil, who has a thousand ways of harming you, prevent you by superfluous cares from hearing the word of salvation. As he said these words, he resumed the thread of his discourse, and immediately that wicked enemy, bringing supernatural fire, set light to a neighboring house, so that flakes of the fire seemed to fly through the air, and a storm of wind and thunder shook the sky. Nearly the whole multitude rushed forward to extinguish the fire, for he restrained a few of them himself. But yet with all their real water they could not put out the false flames, until, at Cuthbert's prayer, the author of the deceit was put to flight, and his fictitious fires dispersed along with him. The multitude, seeing this, were suffused with ingenuous blushes, and falling on their knees before him, prayed to be forgiven for their fickleness of mind, acknowledging their conviction that the devil never rests even for an hour from impeding the work of man's salvation. But he, encouraging them under their infirmity, again began to preach to them the words of everlasting life. Chapter 14 How, when a house was really set on fire, he put out the flames by prayer. But it was not only in the case of an apparition of a fire that his power was shown, for he extinguished a real fire by the fervency of his tears, when many had failed in putting it out with all the water they could get. For as he was traveling about, preaching salvation, like the apostles of old, he one day entered the house of a pious woman whom he was in the habit of often visiting, and whom, from having been nursed by her in his infancy, he was accustomed on that account to call his mother. The house was at the west end of the village, 
and Cuthbert had no sooner entered it to preach the word of God than a house at the other end of the place caught fire and began to blaze most dreadfully. For the wind was from the same quarter, so that the sparks from the kindled thatch flew over the whole village. Those who were present tried to extinguish it with water, but were driven back by the heat. Then the aforesaid handmaid of the Lord, running to the house where Cuthbert was, besought him to help them before her own house and the others in the village should be destroyed. Do not fear, mother, said he. Be of good cheer. This devouring flame will not hurt either you or yours. He then went out and threw himself prostrate on the ground before the door. Whilst he was praying, the wind changed, and beginning to blow from the west, removed all danger of the fire assailing the house into which the man of God had entered. And thus in two miracles he imitated the virtues of two of the fathers. For in the case of the apparition of fire above mentioned, he imitated the reverend and holy father St. Benedict, who by his prayers drove away the apparition of a fire like a burning kitchen, which the old enemy had presented before the eyes of his disciples. And, in the case of the real fire which he thus extinguished, he imitated that venerable priest Marcellinus of Ancona, who, when his native town was on fire, placed himself in front of the flames and put them out by his prayers, though all the exertions of his fellow countrymen had failed to extinguish them with water. Nor is it wonderful that such perfect and pious servants of God should receive power against the force of fire, considering that by their daily piety they enable themselves to conquer the desires of the flesh and to extinguish all the fiery darts of the wicked one. And to them is applicable the saying of the prophet, When thou walkest through the fire, thou shalt not be burned, neither shall the fire kindle upon thee. But I and those who are like me, conscious of our own weakness and inertness, are sure that we can do nothing in that way against material fire, and indeed are by no means sure that we shall be able to escape unhurt from that fire of future punishment, which shall never be extinguished. But the love of our Savior is strong and abundant, and will bestow the grace of His protection upon us, though we are unworthy and unable in this world to extinguish the fires of vicious passions and of punishment in the world which is to come. Chapter 15 How He Cast Out a Devil from the Prefect's Wife, Even Before His Arrival but as we have above related how this venerable man prevailed against the false maneuvers of the devil, now let us show in what way he displayed his power against his open and undisguised enmity. There was a certain prefect of King Egfrid, Hildemer by name, a man devoted with all his house to good works, and therefore especially beloved by St. Cuthbert, and often visited by him whenever he was journeying that way. This man's wife, who was devoted to almsgiving and other fruits of virtue, was suddenly so afflicted by a devil that she gnashed her teeth, uttered the most pitiable cries, and throwing about her arms and limbs, caused great terror to all who saw or heard her. Whilst she was lying in this state and expected to die, her husband mounted his horse and, coming to the man of God, besought his help, saying, My wife is ill and at the point of death. I entreat you to send a priest to visit her before she dies, and minister to her the sacrament of the body and blood of Christ, and also that when she is dead, she may be buried in this holy place. He was ashamed to say that she was out of her senses, 
because the man of God had always seen her in her right mind. Whilst the holy man was going out to find a priest to send to her, he reflected in his mind that it was no ordinary infirmity, but a visitation of the devil. And so, returning to the man who had come to entreat him in his wife's behalf, he said, I will not send anyone, but I will go myself to visit her. Whilst they were going, the man began to cry, and the tears ran down his cheeks, for he was afraid lest Cuthbert, finding her afflicted with a devil, should think that she had been a false servant of the Lord, and that her faith was not real. The man of God consoled him. Do not weep, because I am likely to find your wife otherwise than I could wish. For I know that she is vexed with a devil, though you are afraid to name it. And I know, moreover, that before we arrive, she will be freed, and come to meet us, and will herself take the reins, as sound in mind as ever, and will invite us in and minister to us as before. For not only the wicked, but the innocent are sometimes permitted by God to be afflicted in body, and are even taken captive in spirit by the devil. Whilst he thus consoled the man, they approached the house, and the evil spirit fled, not able to meet the coming of the holy man. The woman, freed from her suffering, rose up immediately, as if from sleep, and meeting the man of God with joy, held the bridle of his horse, and having entirely recovered her strength, both of mind and body, begged him to dismount and to bestow his blessing upon her house and ministering diligently to him, testified openly that, at the first touch of the rain, she had felt herself relieved from all the pain of her former suffering. Chapter 16 How He Lived and Taught in the Monastery of Lindisfarne Whilst this venerable servant of the Lord was thus during many years, distinguishing himself by such signs of spiritual excellence in the monastery of Melrose, its reverend abbot Ida, transferred him to the monastery in the island of Lindisfarne, that there also he might teach the rules of monastic perfection with the authority of its governor, and illustrate it by the example of his virtue. For the same reverend abbot had both monasteries under his jurisdiction. And no one should wonder that, though the island of Lindisfarne is small, we have above made mention of a bishop, and now of an abbot and monks, for the case is really so. For the same island, inhabited by servants of the Lord, contains both, and all are monks. For Aidan, who was the first bishop of that place, was a monk, and with all his followers lived according to the monastic rule. Wherefore all the principles of that place from him to the present time exercise the episcopal office, so that, whilst the monastery is governed by the abbot, whom they, with the consent of the brethren, have elected, all the priests, deacons, singers, readers, and other ecclesiastical officers of different ranks, observe the monastic rule in every respect, as well as the bishop himself. The blessed Pope Gregory showed that he approved this mode of life, when in answer to Augustine, his first missionary to Britain, who asked him how bishops ought to converse with their clerks, among other remarks he replied, Because, my brother, having been educated in the monastic rule, you ought not to keep aloof from your clerks, in the English church, which, thanks be to God, has lately been converted to the faith, you should institute the same system, which has existed from the first beginning of our church among our ancestors, none of whom said that the things which he possessed were his own, but they had all things in common. 
When Cuthbert, therefore, came to the church or monastery of Lindisfarne, he taught the brethren monastic rules both by his life and doctrines, and often going round, as was his custom, among the neighboring people, he kindled them up to seek after and work out a heavenly reward. Moreover, by his miracles he became more and more celebrated, and by the earnestness of his prayers restored to their former health many that were afflicted with various infirmities and sufferings. Some that were vexed with unclean spirits, he not only cured whilst present by touching them, praying over them, or even by commanding or exercising the devils to go out of them, but even when absent he restored them by his prayers, or by foretelling that they should be restored, amongst whom also was the wife of the prefect above mentioned. There were some brethren in the monastery who preferred their ancient customs to the new regular discipline. But he got the better of these by his patience and modest virtues, and by daily practice at length brought them to the better system which he had in view. Moreover, in his discussions with the brethren, when he was fatigued by the bitter taunts of those who opposed him, he would rise from his seat with a placid look, and dismiss the meeting until the following day, when, as if he had suffered no repulse, he would use the same exhortations as before, until he converted them, as I have said before, to his own views. For his patience was most exemplary, and in enduring the opposition which was heaped equally upon his mind and body, he was most resolute, and amid the asperities which he encountered, he always exhibited such placidity of countenance, as made it evident to all that his outward vexations were compensated for by the internal consolations of the Holy Spirit. But he was so zealous in watching and praying, that he is believed to have sometimes passed three or four nights together therein, during which time he neither went to his own bed, nor had any accommodation from the brethren for reposing himself. For he either passed the time alone, praying in some retired spot, or singing and making something with his hands, thus beguiling his sleepiness by labor. Or, perhaps, he walked round the island, diligently examining everything therein, and by this exercise relieved the tediousness of psalmody and watching. Lastly, he would reprove the faint-heartedness of the brethren, who took it amiss if anyone came and unseasonably entreated them to awake at night or during their afternoon naps. No one, said he, can displease me by waking me out of my sleep, but, on the contrary, give me pleasure. For by rousing me from inactivity, he enables me to do or think of something useful, so devout and zealous was he in his desire after heavenly things, that whilst officiating in the solemnity of the liturgy, he never could come to the conclusion thereof without a plentiful shedding of tears. But whilst he duly discharged the mysteries of our Lord's passion, he would, in himself, illustrate that in which he was officiating. In contrition of heart he would sacrifice himself to the Lord, and whilst he exhorted the bystanders to lift up their hearts and to give thanks unto the Lord, his own heart was lifted up rather than his voice, and it was the spirit which groaned within him rather than the note of singing. In his zeal for righteousness, he was fervid to correct sinners. He was gentle in the spirit of mildness to forgive the penitent, so that he would often shed tears over those who confessed their sins, pitying their weakness and would himself point out by his own righteous example what course the sinner should pursue. He used vestments of the ordinary description, 
neither noticeable for their too great neatness, nor yet too slovenly. Wherefore, even to this day, it is not customary in that monastery for anyone to wear vestments of a rich or valuable color, but they are content with that appearance which the natural wool of the sheep presents. By these and such like spiritual exercises, this venerable man both excited the good to follow his example, and recalled the wicked and perverse from their errors to regularity of life. Chapter 17 On the habitation which he made for himself in the island of Farn, when he had expelled the devils. When he had remained some years at the monastery, he was rejoiced to be able at length, with the blessing of the abbot and brethren accompanying him, to retire to the secrecy of solitude which he had so long coveted. He rejoiced that from the long conversation with the world he was now thought worthy to be promoted to retirement and divine contemplation. He rejoiced that he now could reach to the condition of those of whom it is sung by the psalmist, The holy shall walk from virtue to virtue, the God of gods shall be seen in Zion. At his first entrance upon the solitary life, he sought out the most retired spot in the outskirts of the monastery. But when he had for some time contended with the invisible adversary with prayer and fasting in this solitude, he then, aiming at higher things, sought out a more distant field for conflict, and more remote from the eyes of men. There is a certain island called Farn, in the middle of the sea, not made an island, like Lindisfarne, by the flow of the tide, which the Greeks call Ruma, and then restore to the mainland at its ebb but lying off several miles to the east, and consequently surrounded on all sides by the deep and boundless ocean. No one before God's servant Cuthbert had ever dared to inhabit this island alone, on account of the evil spirits which reside there. But when this servant of Christ came, armed with the helmet of salvation, the shield of faith, and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, all the fiery darts of the wicked were extinguished, and that wicked enemy, with all his followers, were put to flight. Christ's soldier, therefore, having thus, by the expulsion of the tyrants, become the lawful monarch of the land, built a city fit for his empire, and houses therein suitable to his city. The building is almost of a round form, from wall to wall about four or five poles in extent. The wall on the outside is higher than a man, but within, by excavating the rock, he made it much deeper, to prevent the eyes and the thoughts from wandering, that the mind might be wholly bent on heavenly things, and the pious inhabitant might behold nothing from his residence but the heavens above him. The wall was constructed, not of hewn stones or of brick and mortar, but of rough stones and turf, which had been taken out from the ground within. Some of them were so large that four men could hardly lift them, but Cuthbert himself, with angels helping him, had raised them up and placed them on the wall. There were two chambers in the house, one an oratory, the other for domestic purposes. He finished the walls of them by digging round and cutting away the natural soil within and without, and formed the roof out of rough poles and straw. Moreover, at the landing place of the island he built a large house, in which the brethren who visited him might be received and rest themselves, and not far from it there was a fountain of water for their use. Chapter 18 How by his prayers he drew water from the dry ground, 
and how he got on during his retirement. But his own dwelling was destitute of water, being built on hard and stony ground. The man of God, therefore, sent for the brethren, for he had not yet withdrawn himself entirely from the sight of visitors, and said to them, You see that my dwelling is destitute of water, but I pray you, let us beseech him who turned the solid rock into a pool of water, and stones into fountains, that giving glory, not to us, but to his own name, he may vouchsafe to open to us a spring of water, even from this stony rock. Let us dig in the middle of my hut, and I believe, out of his good pleasure, he will give us drink. They therefore made a pit, and the next morning found it full of water, springing up from within. Wherefore there can be no doubt that it was elicited by the prayers of this man of God from the ground which was before dry and stony. Now this water, by a most remarkable quality, never overflowed its first limits so as to flood the pavement, nor yet ever failed, however much of it might be taken out, so that it never surpassed or fell short of the daily necessities of him who used it for his sustenance. Now when Cuthbert had, with the assistance of the brethren, made for himself this dwelling with its chambers, he began to live in a more secluded manner. At first, indeed, when the brethren came to visit him, he would leave his cell and minister to them. He used to wash their feet devoutly with warm water, and was sometimes compelled by them to take off his shoes, that they might wash his feet also. For he had so far withdrawn his mind from attending to the care of his person, and fixed it upon the concerns of his soul, that he would often spend whole months without taking off his leathern gaiters. Sometimes, too, he would keep his shoes on from one Pascha to another, only taking them off on account of the washing of feet, which then takes place at the Lord's Supper. Wherefore, in consequence of his frequent prayers and prostrations, which he made with his shoes on, he was discovered to have contracted a callus on the junction of his feet and legs. At length, as his zeal for perfection grew, he shut himself up in his cell away from the sight of men, and spent his time alone in fasting, watching, and prayer, rarely having communication with anyone without, and that through the window, which at first was left open, that he might see and be seen. But, after a time, he shut that also, and opened it only to give his blessing, or for any other purpose of absolute necessity. Chapter 19 How He Sowed a Field with Barley and kept off the birds from the crop by his mere word. At first, indeed, he received from his visitors a small portion of bread, and drank water from the fountain. But afterwards he thought it more fitting to live by the labor of his own hands, like the old fathers. He therefore asked them to bring him some instruments of husbandry, and some wheat to sow. But when he had sown the grain in the spring, it did not come up. At the next visit of the monks, he said to them, Perhaps the nature of the soil or the will of God does not allow wheat to grow in this place. Bring me, I beg you, some barley. Possibly that may answer. If, however, on trial it does not, I had better return to the monastery than be supported here by the labor of others. The barley was accordingly brought and sown, although the season was extraordinarily late, and the barley came up most unexpectedly and most abundantly. It no sooner began to ripen than the birds came and wasted it most grievously. Christ's holy servant, 
as he himself afterwards told it, for he used, in a cheerful and affable manner, to confirm the faith of his hearers by telling them the mercies which his own faith had obtained from the Lord, drew near to the birds, and said to them, Why do you touch that which you have not sown? Have you more share than I in this? If you have received license from God, do what he allows you. But if not, get you gone, and do no further injury to that which belongs to another. He had no sooner spoken than all the flock of birds departed, and never more returned to feed upon that field. Thus in two miracles did this reverend servant of Christ imitate the example of two of the fathers. For, in drawing water from the rock, he followed the holy Saint Benedict, who did almost the same thing, and in the same way, though more abundantly, because there were more who were in want of water. And in driving away the birds, he imitated the reverend and holy father Saint Anthony, who by his word alone drove away the wild asses from the garden which he had planted. Chapter 20 How the crows apologized to the man of God for the injury which they did him, and made him a present in compensation. I am here tempted to relate another miracle which he wrought in imitation of the aforesaid Father St. Benedict, in which the obedience and humility of birds are a warning to the perversity and pride of mankind. There were some crows which had long been accustomed to build on the island. One day the man of God saw them, whilst making their nests, pull out the thatch of the hut which he had made to entertain the brethren in, and carry it away to build with. He immediately stretched out his hand and warned them to do no harm to the brethren. As they neglected his command, he said to them, In the name of Jesus Christ, depart as speedily as possible, and do not presume to remain any longer in the place to which you are doing harm. He had scarcely uttered these words when they flew away in sorrow. At the end of three days, one of the two returned, and finding the man of God digging in the field, spread out its wings in a pitiable manner, and bending its head down before his feet, in a tone of humility asked pardon by the most expressive signs it could, and obtained from the reverend father permission to return. It then departed and fetched its companion, and when they had both arrived, they brought in their beaks a large piece of hog's lard, which the man of God used to show to the brethren who visited him, and kept to grease their shoes with, testifying to them how earnestly they should strive after humility, when a dumb bird that had acted so insolently, hastened by prayers, lamentation, and presence, to obliterate the injury which it had done to man. Lastly, as a pattern of reformation to the human race, these birds remained for many years and built their nests in the island, and did not dare to give annoyance to anyone. But let no one think it absurd to learn virtue from birds, for Solomon says, Go to the ant, thou sluggard, consider her ways, and be wise. Chapter 21 How Even the Sea Was Subservient to His Wants But not only did the animals of the air and sea, for the sea itself, as the air and fire, on former occasions which we have mentioned, exemplified their obedience to the venerable man. For it is no wonder that every creature should obey his wishes, who so faithfully, with his whole heart, obeyed the great author of all creatures. But we, for the most part, have lost our dominion over the creation that has been subjected to us, 
because we neglect to obey the Lord and Creator of all things. The sea itself, I say, displayed the most ready obedience to Christ's servant when he had need of it, for he intended to build a little room in his monastery, adapted to his daily necessities. And on the side towards the sea, where the waves had scooped a hollow, it was necessary to put some support across the opening, which was twelve feet wide. He therefore asked the brethren, who came to visit him, when they returned the next time to bring him a beam twelve feet long, to support his intended building. They readily promised to bring it, and having received his blessing, departed. But by the time they reached home they had entirely forgotten the matter, and on their next visit neglected to carry the timber which they had promised. He received them mildly, and giving them welcome in God's name, asked them for the wood which he had requested them to bring. Then they, remembering what they had promised, apologized for their forgetfulness. Cuthbert, in the most gentle manner, pacified them and requested them to sleep there and remain till the morning. For, said he, I do not think that God will forget my service or my necessities. They accepted his invitation, and when they rose in the morning, they saw that the tide had, during the night, brought on shore a beam of the required size and placed it exactly in the situation where the proposed chamber was to be built. When they saw this, they marveled at the holiness of the venerable man, for that even the elements obeyed him, and took much shame to themselves for their forgetfulness and sloth, who were taught even by the senseless elements what obedience ought to be shown to God's holy saints. Chapter 22 How he gave salutary admonitions to many who came to him, and exposed the impotent snares of the old enemy. But many came to the man of God, not only from the furthest parts of Lindisfarne, but even from the more remote parts of Britain, led thither by the fame of his virtues, to confess the errors which they had committed, or the temptations of the devil which they suffered, or the adversities common to mortals, with which they were afflicted, and all hoping to receive consolation from a man so eminent for holiness. Nor did their hope deceive them, for no one went away from him without consolation, no one returned afflicted with the same grief which had brought him thither. For he knew how to comfort the sorrowful with pious exhortation. He could recall the joys of celestial life to the memory of those who were straitened in circumstances, and show the uncertainty of prosperity and adversity in this life. He had learnt to make known to those who were tempted the numerous wiles of their ancient enemy, by which that mind would be easily captivated which was deprived of brotherly or divine love. Whereas, the mind which, strengthened by the true faith, should continue its course, would, by the help of God, break the snares of the adversary like the threads of a spider's web. How often, said he, have they sent me headlong from the high rock? How many times have they thrown stones at me as if to kill me? Yea, they sought to discourage me by various trials of apparitions, and to exterminate me from this scene of trial, but were never able to affect my body with injury, or my mind with fear. He was accustomed to relate these things more frequently to the brotherhood, lest they should wonder at his conversation as being peculiarly exalted, because, despising secular cares, he preferred to live apart. But, said he, the life of monks may well be wondered at, who are subjected in all things to the orders of the abbot, the times of watching, praying, 
fasting, and working, being all regulated according to his will, many of whom have I known far exceed my littleness, both in purity of mind and advancement in prophetic grace, among whom I must mention with all honor the venerable Boisel, servant of Christ, who when an old man formerly supported me in my youth at Melrose Abbey, and while instructing me, he foretold with prophetic truth all things which would happen to me. And of all things which he foretold me, one alone remains which I hope may never be accomplished. Cuthbert told us this was a prophecy of Boisel, that this, our holy servant of Christ, should attain to the office of a bishop, though he, in his eagerness after the heavenly life, felt horrified at the announcement. 